Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Amen. If you would take your Bibles and go with me to John chapter 7. At this uh, time, the children can be dismissed to Children's Church with their parents' permission. Here at the outset of this message, I just want to remind you of John's aim in writing this book. Perhaps you will remember that at the end of 21 chapters about the life of Christ that included numerous and incredible signs pointing to his identity, John says this, John writes this, He did many other signs that are not written here, but these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Many other things Jesus did, but I've specifically decided to tell these stories, to give you these signs, so that you might see that He is the Christ, and in seeing that you might believe. And if you believe, if you trust in Christ alone, you will have life, true life in his name. So if you've been tracking with the study, you know that we've already seen a number of signs that point to the reality of who Jesus is. We've seen him turn water into wine, exercising total authority over creation, even over time. We've seen him heal the son of a high-profile man, demonstrating there even authority to heal from a distance. We've also seen him heal a paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda, this guy who had been lame for over 38 years, unable to walk. Jesus heals him. We've seen him feed thousands of people with one boy's lunch, just manufacturing food out of thin air. We've seen him walk on water. Remarkable, right? If you have eyes to see, if you've been tracking along, you've seen enough. You've seen enough to know who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But on top of all of these signs, we've also seen him teach with an authority, demonstrating an authority that is unprecedented, unparalleled in every sense. So if you've been tracking with John, you know that Jesus is the Christ. You've seen it for yourself. And yet he continues this narrative to demonstrate, to prove to us who he is. And he does so in John chapter 7. I want to encourage you to glance down at this text for a moment. And as you do, what you will find as you work all the way through it is that this text, this chapter, is loaded with questions. In fact, there are about 20 of them, about 20 questions that are given to us in John chapter 7, most of them revolving around the identity of Jesus. Who is this one, Jesus of Nazareth? So as I saw that this week, it caused me to think about the old game show called 20 Questions. Now, I know that none of you saw that. None of you saw that. There isn't a single person here that is old enough to have seen this show. It aired in the 50s. Okay. Everyone's a spring chicken here, right? 20 Questions. Basically, here's how it went. How it went was that there was a panel, like 
like we still see to this day on almost every game show, there's some sort of panel of guests or celebrities, and they're there for this game show, and viewers could send in a word or a phrase that they would have 20 questions to use to try to guess that word or guess that phrase. So it went something like this. The panel would say, is it edible? The host would say, sure it is. Well, is it typically eaten at breakfast? Yes. Did it happen to originate in the South? Yes. Is it sometimes called a heart attack on a plate? Yes. Is it biscuits and gravy? Yes. That's the answer. Ding, 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 ding. You know, the panel got it. But if the viewer has sent in the word or phrase, if they stumped the panel, if they stumped the celebrities, they would win a prize. And I just have to tell you that prizes have come a long way. All right, because as I watched this little excerpt of 20 questions on YouTube, you can check it out for yourself, one of the viewers stumped the panel, and guess what they won? What? What was said? I, I couldn't hear it, sorry. It was not a million dollars. Who wants to be a millionaire? It was not happening at that time. Here's what they won. They won a hard copy of an Oxford di dictionary. That's literally what they want. And uh, I'm sure they were just stoked about that, an Oxford dictionary. Prizes have come a long way. As we look at John chapter 7 again, we'll notice that it's loaded with questions. Here, I just want you to see a few of them for a moment. Verse 11, note it with me. The Jews were looking at him, or excuse me, for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Verse 15, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Verses 19 and 20, first Jesus, when he says, why do you seek to kill me? And then they say in verse 20, who is seeking to kill you? Verses 25 and 26, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Verse 31 they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? This is just a sampling of the roughly 20 questions that you will find in John chapter 7. What I would like to say is there are 20 questions, but only one answer. 20 questions, but only one answer. And so like the game show of old, you get to watch the panel. You get to watch the guests ask their questions and try to deduce who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Unfortunately, some of them will be stumped, but others will be saved. The question is, where are you? As you ask this question here this morning, who is Jesus? What's your answer? Think about that with me as you look at John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, well, after what? After John chapter 6, after the crowds have started to dissipate, thin out, and then leave all together. And we've had the backs against the wall moment with the disciples, the very few close, intimate disciples. They remain. They've been convinced Jesus is the Christ, but the massive crowds have gone away. And they're making it known that they are disappointed in this one that they thought had so much promise. After this, Jesus went about doing his work in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So they have been seeking to kill Jesus since chapter 5 when he 
healed the paralytic. And they continue that search. So Jesus remains in Galilee. Thus verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. The feast of tabernacles. Let's pause here for a moment. We're going to talk in detail about the feast of booze or the feast of tabernacles in the next two weeks. And I'm excited to look at that with you. It's a very interesting feast. It's a a fun feast. It's a glorious feast. A lot of praise, a lot of thanksgiving, a lot of happy, a lot of praise. But for now, I will suffice to say that the Feast of Booze happened at the end of the harvest, in the fall time of the year, and it lasted for about eight days, and lots of people, lots of Israelites came from everywhere to descend upon Jerusalem. It was a big moment for the people of Israel in this day. And so Jesus' brothers, we're going to find out, want to capitalize on this moment in their conversation with Jesus. Verse 3. So his brothers, these are his earthly brothers. They're half-brothers, of course. Jesus was not the physical son of Joseph. But Joseph and Mary had other children after Jesus. They had other children. And so these brothers grew up in the shadow of Jesus. Guys like James and Jude. These guys here said to him this, leave here, meaning Galilee, leave here and go to Jerusalem, excuse me, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. Now, as you initially read these first couple of statements from the brothers, you might think to yourself that they're trying to help him out. Like they want to see his popularity grow. And so they want to send him into a place in which more people will take notice of who he actually is. But with that last statement in verse 5, what are we seeing? They're probably not trying to help him out at all. Some actually even think that they're kind of hoping that Jesus gets taken out. Because, as you see in the context, the people there in Judea want to kill him. Personally, I don't believe it's that strong. I believe, I think, that his brothers are simply mocking him. They're simply, in this moment, taunting Jesus. For he's been doing his work, they've been in his shadow, but now the crowds have left. Right? Everybody's a little bit disappointed in Jesus. And so what his brothers do at this point is say to him, Hey, Jesus, like, if you're big time, if you're a big deal, why stay in small-time Galilee? Why don't, why don't you take your show to the big stage, right? Go big or go home, Jesus. And they're kind of like, prove it. If you're really a Messiah type, prove it. Show it to the world. That's what they say, verse 4. See it in your text. Show it to the world. If you have something to offer, show it to everybody. And by the way, Feast of Booths is near. This is a perfect time to do it. This is a, a perfect time for you to go and declare who you really are. So how does Jesus respond? How does he respond? He responds in a way that he always responds. He's not threatened. He's not panicked by these statements. He's not panicked by the fact that the crowds have started to dissipate. Not at all. He's very comfortable. He's very secure. He's not surprised by their threats. But he does answer their question. What does he say? 
Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. My time has not yet come. Jesus, knowing the sovereign timetable of the Father, knows that his time for a public, very processional appearance in Jerusalem is not now. First of all, because they're looking for him to kill him. But second of all, because it's not the right time yet. In about six months from now, Jesus will enter Jerusalem, and it will be a processional. It will be a triumphant entry into Jerusalem, but it's not time for that yet. He knows it, and so he says, I'm not going to go up, at least not publicly. I'm not going to go up. It's, it's fine time for you guys, because no one hates you. This is what he says. Verse 7, no one hates you. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, and why? What does Jesus say? It hates me because I testify about it. And here again we find that Jesus is very much polarizing. Not because of his personality or how he's caring about his ministry, but because he speaks the truth. Because he cuts it straight. Because he's willing to say your greatest need is spiritual. It's not physical. Your greatest need is that which your soul has. Your soul is defunct. Your soul is in desperate need of redemption, absolute renovation. This is your greatest need. And because he says that and calls people out in their sin, they hate him. This is why they want to kill him. So in effect, he says to his brothers, you guys can go anywhere you want. No one hates you, but I can't do that. Because the world hates me and is seeking to put me to death. So verse 8, you guys go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Now to be very clear, he's going to go up. So to make sure this doesn't trip us up, understand the context, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to go up in that way, in the way that his brothers want him to go, in a public, like, show myself to the world type of way. That's not what he's going to do now. And so verse 9, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Let me just pause here for a moment and make a, a couple points of application. First of all, let me just encourage you guys, don't be surprised when society maligns you because of your close connection with Jesus or because of your willingness to speak the truth. Don't be surprised. Now, it needs to not be our personality, okay? Right? An unnecessary offense. But don't be surprised if you stand for the truth that the world will malign you. It will. It will not abide the truth of Christ. Not all of it anyway. It will not abide the truth of Christ. So don't be surprised by that. In fact, Jesus tells us to anticipate that. This has been the way it has been from the beginning. This is the way Jesus Christ himself was treated. Moreover, don't be surprised that in our day, society continues to doubt and hate Jesus. If you want to, you can find article after article after article sort of like exposing the fraud of Jesus, right? All the reasons why he's not good or all the reasons why it's not true. 
You can find that. You can find TV special after TV special, right? Seeking to expose that Jesus isn't who he claims to be. In essence saying, people like us have lost their minds. Giving their time to this, giving their money to this, giving their lives to this, living a certain way. Because it's nonsense. Recently I saw a, an excerpt of an interview where this brilliant guy was being interviewed and he said this. He said, uh, we have every reason to believe, or something like this, we have every reason to believe that he was a real person. There's no reason to deny that he was a real person. But then he went on to say this, but we also know that he didn't walk on water. That's what he said. We have no reason to deny that he was a real person. We know that's true. But we also know that he didn't walk on water. And what I'm saying to you, my friends, is don't let that threaten you. Okay? Don't let that shake you. Jesus is not afraid of investigation. In fact, that's one of the things that you see in this text. He, he is ready for any question. Okay? The Bible is ready for any question. Don't allow that to push you around. And instead, investigate that. Just think about that claim for a moment. We know that he didn't walk on water. How? Like, were you there? Right? Just think about it with me. Were you there? But the answer to that question would be, of course not. So how can he say that? Well, he's saying it scientifically. But is it such a stretch to think that he could walk on water if he also turned water into wine? Is it such a stretch to think that he could walk on water if demonstrating his ability to turn water into wine, we understand that he's the Lord of all creation? That he made water? It's not a stretch to say that the one who made water could walk on it. Is it? Is it? Just think about it. It's not as outlandish as people want to make it seem. It's still faith. Hear me. It's still faith, for sure. But it's not without reason. You guys with me? Amen? Amen? It's not without reason. Okay, so don't allow that to push you around or threaten you. The second thing I want to say here that was this, and I think this is so encouraging for our hearts. Sometimes the biggest critics are the closest to salvation. Sometimes the biggest critics are the closest, in fact, to salvation. Isn't it wonderful to be reminded that these guys in John 7, 1 through 11 or so, these brothers of Jesus, they do eventually believe. Isn't that good? One of these guys, James, becomes the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. The other, Jude, writes one of the books that we have in our Bible. They are absolutely convinced, eventually, absolutely convinced that their half-brother really is the Messiah. And they get bold about it. Let me just encourage you, don't lose hope. Don't give up on people. All right, be kind and continue to live the truth in front of them and share it when you can. There is always hope. Sometimes the biggest critics are in fact the closest to salvation. What a beautiful thing it is. But here initially what we see is that his brothers mock. Essentially, if you're a big deal, why don't you go big? Okay, Jesus, go big or go home. Well, Jesus does actually go to the feast. See in your text, verse 11, 10 and 11, Jesus does go up, not publicly, not in a processional type of way, but in private, kind of covert. 
I'm imagining Jesus with kind of a hood on and just kind of moving his way through the crowd, seeking to not be noticed. And what does he hear as he moves through the crowd? Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Where is this Jesus? Furthermore, verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. But there is a buzz. His brothers mock, but his countrymen talk. Who do you think he is? Right? Now, just think about this in connection with what his brothers just said. Jesus, why are you just working in secret? If you want to be known as who you claim to be, you need to go big. Well, apparently he has, right? Apparently he has. Undoubtedly, this is a point that John wants to make. He's not been secret. News about him is traveling everywhere. Many people have seen him perform the miraculous. Many people have heard him teach. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people have been impacted by Jesus and have had the opportunity to see and believe have had the opportunity to understand he's different. Perhaps he is the Messiah, right? How do we know this? The whole city is abuzz with Jesus. Everybody is whispering about Jesus. Can you imagine this? Walking through Jerusalem at this time. We'll talk about this more uh, later, but everybody's out in tents, little lean-to shacks, right? During this festival, everybody's outside. Can you imagine walking through and just overhearing through these thin walls and these lean-to shacks, people talking about Jesus. Did you hear that some people claim he walks on water? Are you serious? Get out of town, right? People are talking about Jesus. That's the buzz. Everyone's talking about him. Now, it's not all positive, right? See both positive and negative. Some are saying he's a good man, but others are saying, no, he's a problem He's a problem. But something I want to clue you into, though, is this. Neither of these are ultimately where Jesus wants to be. Even those that are positive have not yet gotten it, right? Because Jesus didn't come merely to be seen as a good man. And in fact, if someone claims to be God and they're not, they're not good. Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be the Messiah, the Christ, the sent one, the anointed one, from the Father. And it seems at this point that no one is getting it. It's not entirely true, but it seems that way. The crowds have gone, and the people talk. But then at this point in time, Jesus does something that sends the crowd into a frenzy, undoubtedly. You can imagine it. Yourself there in first century Jerusalem, Jesus takes the stage Everybody's buzzing about him, but they're going, where is he? Why isn't he here? And then suddenly he's on stage. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Think about this moment. First of all, that Jesus takes the stage. I, I can imagine people running, grabbing their friends, 
Like Jesus is on, okay? You guys need to come hear this. You need to see what he's about to do. Are the authorities going to take him out? Right? He's the center of attention in this moment. And as he begins to teach, people again are immediately aware that he's different. He is different. No one we've ever heard humanly is in the same stratosphere as this one. He teaches with such authority. He's utterly convinced that everything he says is absolutely true. This is remarkable. This Jesus is incredible. His audience marvels, and they say, how can he do this? How is he pulling this off? He hasn't been to Oxford. He hasn't been to Harvard, right? He hasn't been to the Master's Seminary. He hasn't even been to UNL. Where's he getting this stuff, right? How is he doing? He's from Galilee. He's a carpenter's kid. How is this happening? So they are amazed. They're astounded by him. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds to this question, again, brilliantly, brilliantly, to say, in effect, I didn't get my message from any school or from any rabbi. I got this message straight from my father. This message is the word of God. See in your text, verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Quick note about verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, Jesus is drawing out their heart. If you desire to see, there's plenty to see. If you want to see, there's plenty to see. You'll know that my teaching, you'll know in your head and your heart that my teaching is from God. And I offer that to you as well. If you want to see, I think you'll see. If you want to hear, I believe you'll hear. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So what is Jesus doing with this? Tethering himself to the Father with regard to his word. Please understand that Jesus is not in any way denying his deity. He's actually affirming his deity. And he does so as John continues this narrative. What he's doing here is differentiating himself from other sort of self-appointed and egocentric prophets. Those guys were a dime a dozen, guys who wanted to be the show. They wanted to be the center of attention. And so they would sort of self-appoint themselves to be at the center, to have the voice, to have the microphone, as it were. And it was all about them. It's pretty clear. It was all about them. People would listen to them for a time, but it was clear that it was all about them. Jesus is saying, I'm not like that. I'm not like that at all. Rather, I am tethered to who? What he's going to make clear as the narrative continues in the Gospel of John is he's tethering himself to the Father. Undisputably, I am coming to you from the Father. Therefore, Jesus is unwilling to see himself as this independent figure but rather he always sees himself in connection to the Trinity, that he is a part of this triune God, God, 
three persons, one God. That from eternity past, they made this plan. So in that sense, in that sense, this is Jesus' message. But in this moment, differentiated from other so-called Messiah types, Jesus is saying, this is not just something I've decided to do. This is something that is coming to you from him, from your father. So Jesus relentlessly tethers himself to the father. Moreover, perhaps what he's doing here is also fulfilling prophecy. For Jesus knew prophecies such as found in Deuteronomy chapter 18 about the prophet. So hear the words of Deuteronomy. This is Moses speaking. He says, The Lord your God, so the people of Israel, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Verse 15. You move forward to verse 17. Moses goes on to say, And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words. Hear this. Moses said, God told me, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus, in effect, is saying, I am the prophet. I am the prophet of God. Everything I say is consistent with what God has said and what God will do. You guys test it out. Put me on trial. Something that's found also in Deuteronomy chapter 18 is a way in which to evaluate prophets, which is interesting, right? God knew that people would pretend. God knew that there would be plenty of pretenders. And so there was a way in which prophets could be tested, and Jesus is inviting that. Test it out. Everything I say is consistent with God, and everything I say is consistent with what God will do. Not only in my word, but in my action. Jesus is saying, I'm the prophet. So never is Jesus independent of the Father. Later in John chapter 10, this is beautiful, my friends. We're going to see this. Later in John chapter 10, Jesus will say, I and the Father are, finish the, finish the sentence, are one. I and the Father are one. So he's tethering himself to the Father. This is the word of God. Now, as we think about this, I love what Don Carson had to say. I think this encourages our hearts. He says, earlier prophets could thunder, thus says the Lord. This is what they said. If you read your Old Testament, Thus says the Lord, but Jesus' words and deeds are so much at one with the Father's that Jesus can legitimately and repeatedly presage his remarks with an authoritative, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. These are the words of God. So to the question, how can he teach like this? Where did he get this? He can teach like this because he's God. Amen? because he is God. Now, at this point, the narrative takes a slight turn, where Jesus is not always defensive. Now Jesus switches to offense, and I love that, okay? He switches to offense. The questioned becomes the questioner, and everything begins to change. See it in your text, verse 19. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? 
Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus switches to offense, my friends, and his opponents squirm. All right? I want you to see this. His opponents squirm. So go back with me to verse 19, and let's, let's see this and understand what's happening here. Verse 19, he says, has not Moses given you the law? And then he follows that directly with a question, but I think there's an implied answer in here. So I think it goes something like this. Didn't Moses give you the law? Anticipating a resounding yes, of course. I mean, th this is what they were so proud of, right? We have the law. We're not like the Gentiles. We have the law and we keep it, right? This is their mentality. That's, that's their tone. We are law keepers. And so Jesus says, didn't Moses give you the law? Anticipating yes. And then he follows with what? So why don't you keep it? What's he, what's he anticipating there? Gasps. Think about it. That's what he's anticipating. Why don't you guys then keep it? <gasps> we do, right? We keep the law. We are law-abiding, right? This is what we do. This is our jam. We keep the law. And then here's what he says, anticipating that. Well, then why are you right now planning to break the sixth commandment. Jesus is good <laughs> right here. He's good. So why do you guys have a knife in your, in your hand, essentially? Why are you guys planning to kill me? And here's, here's what happens. When Jesus says that, they go kind of like this. You have a demon. That's what happens. See in your text. It's literally junior high, right? It's junior high self-preservation. That's what they do. They don't have anything to say, and so they say, you're dumb, you're crazy, you're insane. That's what they mean when they say, you have a demon. You're insane. Like you, have, you have no sense about you. And here's what happens, my friends. You have to uh, permit me a little stretch. I don't think it's a stretch. I think what happens here is Jesus essentially implies, am I though? They say, you're crazy. You must have a demon. And Jesus essentially says, am I? Am I, am I the crazy one? How does he do that? He does that as the text develops. See it for yourself. I did one work, Jesus says, verse 21. I did one work and you all marvel at it. What's he referring to? He's referring back to John chapter 5 in which he healed the paralytic. And he did that on the Sabbath. Verse 22, he says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses. It was from Abraham, actually, from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? You guys tracking with the logic here? Jesus, in effect, says, am I the crazy one? You guys think I'm nuts, but am I? And then he goes back to John chapter 5. 
He says this. You guys remember when I healed the paralytic, paralyzed man? Here's how you responded to that. Now, to grab this, take your mind back there. Here's this guy laying by the pool of Bethesda for over 38 years, never able to take a single step. Can you imagine that? Unable to take a single step until Jesus walks in and he knows that this man wants to be healed. He's waiting for some stirring of the waters and hoping that by getting into this stirred up water, he will be healed. But Jesus simply, calmly says to him, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the man believes. He gets up for the first time in 38 years. He gets up and packs up his little mat and starts to go home. And guess what happens? Men in striped shirts come jumping in with yellow flags and whistles. That's what happens. What should have happened? Think about it. What should have happened is that people should have been going, that's amazing, I'm so happy for you. I want to see you run. How fast are you? Can you dunk? Right? This guy, he's taking steps for the first time in 38 years. It's remarkable. But instead, what, the, what do the Pharisees do? They jump in and they go, you're not allowed to pick up your mat on the Sabbath. That's work. We don't work on the Sabbath. We're law keepers. That's what they do. And Jesus is saying, here, watch me. Am I crazy? Think about it. Am I the crazy one? Am I the one that's off my nut? You guys couldn't be excited about that? And so in that moment, the religious elite, they go, oh, he shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath. They totally bypass the fact that he's been healed. And then they look at Jesus and they say, how dare you heal on the Sabbath? Now, what's his logical point here? Aside from saying, I believe, am I the crazy one? He goes on to logically say, you guys do the same thing and you logically work it out. Why? Because you circumcise little boys on the Sabbath. And you've just worked that out. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus knows that also in the Mosaic law, every Jewish boy was circumcised the eighth day after he was born. And sometimes the eighth day fell on what day? Fell on the Sabbath day. And so what did they do? They, they worked it out. They God's law can be logically understood. Use your common sense, right? It's not a problem to circumcise this boy on the Sabbath day. Could it be technically classified as work? Sure, but they'd worked that out. This little surgery can be performed on Sunday or Saturday on the Sabbath, but this guy can't pick up his bed? I can't heal his whole body? Am I crazy? Am I the one that's lost my mind? And I think at this point, they've got nothing to say. So verse 26, the people then debate. Could he be the Christ? Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Think for a moment. It seems that some of these people are growing suspicious of their leaders. 
Could it be that they know he really is the Messiah and they're jealous? Because he's right here. If they really want to take him out, they could take him out, but they're, but they're not. And they don't know what to say. They can't answer his questions. Maybe he really is the Christ. And they just don't like it. But that is almost quickly passed aside because of what they go on to say in verse 27. But, parenthetically, maybe not. Why? We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Pause right there. What is this all about? It's clear, not only from this text and others in the Bible, but also some other ancient texts from the day, that there were traditions, numerous traditions about what the Messiah would look like and be like and what he would do. And one of them at this time was that the Messiah would be a complete unknown before suddenly and surprisingly rising to power to overthrow Israel's enemies and restore Israel to a place of prominence. Now, if, if you just heard that, there is some irony here, right? Because Jesus was himself largely unknown for 30 years. And then he suddenly came on the stage and then he was killed, but then rose again. And in a spiritual sense, overthrew all of Israel's enemies. Amen? in a spiritual sense. So in, in some ways, there's beautiful irony there. But this was a tradition that was circulating at the time. Not really tethered to any specific statement of God in the Old Testament, just a tradition, just a thought. This is what we believe the Messiah will look like. And this is what they do here, verse 27. In this moment of decision, as they are evaluating the scene, knowing everything that he's done, knowing and hearing everything that he said, they go, maybe he is the Christ. And then they go, no, probably not, because we know where he came from. He's the carpenter's son. He's from small-time Galilee. Did anything good come out of Galilee? This is the mindset. And so instead of investigating that and investigating these claims, they just say, he probably isn't. He's probably not the Messiah. So what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't open the Old Testament and demonstrate to them in this moment why it's very much possible for him to be from Galilee. In fact, he needed to be from Galilee. He doesn't open his Bible and demonstrate how he was born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. He doesn't do that. What does he do here? What he does here is continue to tether himself to the Father. This is what they need to hear. I am here from the Father. And you think it through. You evaluate for yourself what you see. If you, if you want to base your rejection on that little thing, that little tradition, fine. That's what Jesus says. In effect, verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, that's true. And you know where I come from, that's true, from a physical sense. But he says, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. Direct reference to Yahweh. Direct reference to the Father. In him you do not know. Here is Jesus cutting it straight. This is why they hate him. Because he's, he is, in this sense, polarizing. He won't let it go. He's not going to say, well, you can have it either way. 
He's just going to say, no, I'm here from the Father. And in your rejection of me, you clearly are displaying that you don't know him. So offensive to them. But they can repent before it or reject him. Unfortunately, here, most of them reject. Verse 29, Jesus says, I know him, for I am, I come from him, and he sent me. So they, verse 30, were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Nothing could actually happen to Jesus until he fulfills why he was there. But then verse 31, and I love this, and this is where we conclude this morning. So good. Especially in light of the fact that his brothers mock, his countrymen talk, his audience marvels, his opponents squirm, and his people debate. We do find that some believe. Amen? Some believe. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? There are some people that are tracking, they're following, they're watching, and they're listening, and they're going, it must be him. It has to be him. Everything's there. Do we expect that the hypothetical Messiah is going to come and look different? How? What more can a man do? This is what they're saying. Because God is opening their eyes as they watch. Their eyes are being opened. Their hearts are being opened to find that he's really right. He's really true. He is the Messiah. Look at what he's done. Hear how he teaches. These are the words of God. They're willing to see. They're wanting to see. And they see. They're wanting to know. And they know. In their head and in their hearts, this is the Son of God. What else could he do? Where else could we go? He's the one. And it's beautiful. So the question is, what about you? Are you likewise convinced? Are you convinced that your real need is spiritual? That you have a need for a Savior for your soul? That apart from Jesus and his work on the cross for you, you are lost in your sin. You're not right with God. You need to be made right with God. Are you convinced of this? And is Jesus your only hope? And I hope that that's the case for you. That as you hear this testimony of Jesus and follow this narrative of people evaluating Jesus and having Jesus on the stand, your heart is resonating with every point and going, they don't see it, but I do. I do. I know in the depths of my soul. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's everything that we've hoped for. Now, here in conclusion, just check this out. I think this is really cool. As we think about this narrative that does meander a bit, consider how his brothers did mock, and just think about the reality that they did eventually believe. Think about the fact that his countrymen did talk, And Jesus remains to this very day, 2,000 years later, a headline story. His audience marveled, and there were questions they couldn't answer. The questions don't just go one way. 
there are questions that people can't answer. How, what do we make of the resurrection? What do we make of the sweeping impact and influence of Jesus on this world? There are questions that can't be answered, my friends. Audiences still marvel. His opponents still squirm. We all do at the hearing of the law. As Jesus cuts it straight, and we recognize I'm a sinner. Daily, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. But if you're with him, you know those sins are covered. Amen? Those sins have been washed away. You know what it's like to live without guilt and without shame. You know what it's like to be free. Amen? What it's like to be free. But his opponents still squirm and people still debate and some still, praise God, do believe. Being convinced he is the Christ. He has to be. There's no one else. And I'm with him. I love this. I love how verse 31 clues us in to the fact that some do get it. By God's grace, some do get it. I trust that you do. That you've recognized your need of him and that he paid it all. My friend, if you're not there today, let me encourage you to talk to someone today. Talk to someone today. Evaluate your heart and evaluate this Jesus. Is there any more that he could do to prove himself to you? Think about it. Think about it. You can know a life that is not afraid of death. You can know a life of total freedom from sin, from the shame of it, from the guilt of it. You can know a life that has the hope of an eternity that's going to be amazing, but it's only found in him. It's either him or nothing. And that's what he offers. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, you're amazing. As we watch you in this record, you are amazing. You display your divinity and your love and your miracles and your teaching and how you answer questions and how you pose them. You're so good. You're so good. I pray that you would do your work in us. God, I, I pray that if there are people here that have not yet trusted in you to give their lives away to you, knowing that you'll give them everything, I pray that you would cause that to happen. I pray that they would have conversations, understanding your gospel and trusting in you alone. God, I pray that we would be so encouraged next week as people give their testimony of this before going into the waters of baptism that displays your glory and gospel. And I pray for your people, those who do know that are convinced that they are with you. I pray that you, I pray that you would increase our joy and our capacity to worship knowing that you have paid it all. And we can marvel in a good way at you, our hero and our savior. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.